The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, where this episode we're trying to get to the bottom of the same subject we were talking about last week, which is the future of work. What is artificial intelligence and automation going to do to the world of work, and how can we solve it? So last episode I described the problem, which is that artificial intelligence may, potentially, make a lot of people unemployed in the near-term future, and the range of opinions that people have on this problem. And as far as those go, you can kind of pick and mix from... It's the apocalypse, the robot job apocalypse, societies we know it will soon be over. Or, it's okay, we'll just give everyone a universal basic income, and they can all start small businesses or learn to code or something with their free time. Or, it's okay, we'll just retrain everyone so that all the coal miners are making solar panels now. Or, it's okay, AI won't replace that many people and has been greatly exaggerated. Just because a job has the potential to become automated doesn't mean that it will be automated. Instead, AI will become a tool that enhances our productivity, and makes us all wealthier. Or, alternatively, it's okay, AI will replace a whole bunch of people, but will come up with new jobs instead. No one is going around smashing spinning jennies nowadays like they did in the era of Ned Ludd and the Luddites, and there aren't thousands of unemployed loom weavers on the streets of Manchester, because everyone moved on, the economy moved on to some new stage, We all got new demands, and now all of those spinning jenny workers probably work in PR or human relations or something like that. As for me, I fall in the middle of all of these extreme viewpoints, which is a clever way of saying I don't really know what's going to happen. Um, I fall in the middle of the we're all doomed and the it's fine viewpoints. And of course it's nice and convenient because it means I can't be wrong, unless we are all doomed, in which case we'll be too busy being doomed, Or it's fine, in which case everyone will forget that there was even a debate. What I will say is, you often have to look at the people who are advancing these viewpoints, and what they necessarily have to gain from advancing these viewpoints. Most politicians are in the, it won't be that bad, camp. Because otherwise, they sort of cede ground to the universal basic income, massive retraining policy people. And if they don't want to enact those policies, or get the money to pay for them, Well, if they're not going to do that, it sounds like they're creating a crisis and then doing nothing to address it. Most people who work in the robotics industry are, at least publicly, in the AI and robotics will be a tool that enhances our productivity camp, because they don't want to be seen as replacing people. That's terrible PR. Automating things to put people out of work, to our modern sensibility, it's starting to become more and more unacceptable to do that kind of thing. We're starting, hopefully, I think, to expect more corporate responsibility from corporations that, in many cases, have as much or more power than governments. There are others who advance universal basic income for their own libertarian reasons. And some of the people who exaggerate the threat of a jobs apocalypse 
are railing against the system of work and even capitalism altogether. I think automation is overhyped in the sense that we won't all be unemployed within a few decades. I think there's been a lot made of this Oxford report where they talked about 50% of jobs having the potential to be automated by mid-century. But of course, as we talked about last episode with the teaching example, just because a job has the technical potential to be automated certainly doesn't mean that it will be. There's all kinds of things in society that could, I suppose, theoretically be done by machines, but in actual fact, in practice, we find that they're not. But at the same time, I don't think we'll just find things that we want or or new jobs that will replace the old jobs seamlessly, or that people will just be able to magically retrain. Because, after all, where's the money in that? I don't think in 2030 half of us will be permanently useless, permanently unskilled, watching endless Netflix and collecting universal basic income checks from Elon Musk. But on the other hand, I don't think that it's going to be a wild, wonderful ride for everyone either. I just see what's already happening continuing to happen maybe at a slightly accelerated pace. This is usually a pretty good projection, right? And what's happening now, the main phenomenon of the last couple of decades, is exacerbated inequality. Technology is part of the reason that inequality is being exacerbated. As far as the universal basic income people paint their dreams of a wonderful future where we can all spend more time doing the things that we love, I mean, if I can be a firebrand for a moment, it's all very well to insist that the government should be preparing for a scenario where everyone's unemployed by providing money for retraining and retraining everyone to do new technologies of the future and uh, the occupations of the future and supporting those that can't retrain or while they're retraining with a universal basic income. It's very easy to insist on that, as long as someone else pays for it. Many UBI people see that this will be paid for by taxes, which is all very well, providing you don't pay any tax, like Amazon or Facebook or Google, which seem to avoid doing a lot of the time. So when you hear people say these things, you have to look at their tax receipts and how much they'd be willing to contribute to a universal basic income society. And in some cases, there's a lot of hypocrisy to it. In other cases, the universal basic income is actually almost the reverse of a flat tax, where you have a lot of right-wing people who are opposed to progressive taxation. They say, why tax the rich more? Why not just tax everyone by the same percentage? And the universal basic income, if it replaces the benefits that people are already used to in uh, societies that have government support and things like that, the universal basic income would be kind of the inverse, the quote, entitlement version of a flat tax. And so while it appears to be fair on the surface of it, like a flat tax appears to be fair on the surface of it as well, in actual fact, it's a less progressive policy than you might think. Of course, Silicon Valley is not one monolithic thing, but it's a little difficult not to raise your eyebrow at that. You know, please, governments, allow us to continue concentrating wealth in the hands of a very small number of people. Because if you don't progressively tax, and if you give non-progressive benefits to people from the government, well, it may well be the case that you're being fair in the sense that everyone has enough to survive. But of course, people who already have wealth will be able to accumulate it better. And so you end up with less social mobility. And in that case, you can't see how inequality will do anything other than continue to increase. I mean, imagine the world that these people are talking about, where half of the population, or some fraction, 25%, whatever, is permanently useless, obsolete, rendered obsolete by technology, 
and they have just enough money to survive on their basic income. Meanwhile, the benefits of AI, the enhanced productivity of AI, and everything else, well, that accumulates to the owners of the companies, increasingly the owners of the companies, and at the very least, the workers of those companies as well. So you cannot see how this does anything other than exacerbate inequality. And eventually, how can those people on their universal basic incomes ever hope to reach up and get towards the level of these highly specialised, highly wealthy, highly motivated people? This idea that you will be able to found your own business or be an entrepreneur if only you're liberated from the 9-to-5 job that you don't like, well, it's going to be difficult to compete with the entrenched class of much, much wealthier people than you when you do that. And it's especially galling to hear this from people involved with a company like Amazon, with the rumours that Jeff Bezos likes universal basic income. Maybe he could start by paying his workers a living wage, not encouraging them to show up when they're sick, and not keeping tabs on their every movement in the factories and warehouses so that if they're proved by algorithm to be inefficient, they get fired. You know, they're not robots yet. When you look at stuff like this and consider the fact that a UBI would make it easier to justify not giving people proper terms of employment or contracts, but instead hiring us all on an ad hoc freelance basis, you begin to think that the UBI support in the valley has something of an ulterior motive beyond wanting to pay for our Netflix and chill. And as far as this idea that we'll all be more free to do whatever we want with our time once we're liberated from traditional format of you work for a company 9 to 5, I feel like we get sold this a lot nowadays too with the gig economy, the idea that no one has permanent work anymore, that we're all freelancers. This obviously comes with its downsides when it comes to living any kind of secure life, especially in the world that these people envision where technological progress is an accelerating thing. Because that's what AI is, it's an accelerant it causes the rate of change to speed up. Douglas Coupland described it really well in his book of essays, Bit Rot. He talked about a new class, blank-collar workers, the new post-class class. They are a future global monoclass of citizenry, adrift in a classless sea. Neither middle class nor working class, and certainly not rich, blank-collar workers are aware of their status as one unit among seven billion. Blank-collar workers rely on a grab bag of skills to pay the rent. By the time they've died from neglect in a badly run care home, they've had 17 careers, none of which came with a pension. It's amazing that after 20 years or more after he came up with Generation X and started writing about working in early software companies like in his famous book Microsurfs, he still seems to hit the nail on the head of the zeitgeist so well when it's uh, evolving away from most people. Anyway, the UBI paradise is all very well, although your mileage may vary on whether these scenarios are either realistic or desirable. After all, as many have pointed out, a universal basic income is universal, so theoretically Bill Gates can claim as much money from the government as you or I can. So in some ways, actually, it's less good for reversing inequality, which is the great problem of our time, than the social safety net that already exists in a lot of countries. It entrenches things. There is a degree of redistribution, sure, but I doubt the people at the top are envisioning getting any poorer as a result of this. If you're one of the many who's permanently redundant, maybe you have enough money to get by, but you can forget about trying to start a business. They say retrain, retrain, that's the endless refrain, but it costs money, it takes money, and it takes skill, and yeah, it takes a certain amount of innate talent to get good at this stuff. 
I mean, if you believe that it's going to be equally easy for everyone to become a master coder, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of what competences they had in high school, if you're telling me that every single person who's currently working as a taxi driver could refashion themselves as a JavaScript developer if only they had a few months and a little money, I think you're kidding yourself. Not everyone will be able to do that. And in some ways you think, why should they? The retrain refrain casts a lot of pressure on people who find themselves less useful than they once were. And retraining is a hell of a lot to do if you're rich to begin with. I'm lucky, you know, I'm middle class. If I found myself made redundant, or if my career was suddenly obsolete due to some shiny new app, I could go back home, I could live with my parents, or off my savings for a little while. I've had enough education that I could probably get on a training course, and learn, retrain, move into a different career. And they'd financially support me while I did it. But those options simply aren't available to most people. That's why it rings hollow, and I don't think that a UBI will actually make that much of a difference to that fact. But let's say you're settled on the fact that UBI, or a more progressive version of it, is the real solution here. The real question is, how do you get there? The economist John Maynard Keynes noted in response to his critics, who talked about his foolishness in terms of uh, Keynesian stimulus, he was in, uh, Keynes argued in favour of active intervention when a crisis hits, rather than waiting for things to settle down to a better economic equilibrium in the long run, when everything's had time to adjust. But Keynes would always say, in the long run, we're all dead. After all, it takes if it takes 50 years of upheaval and economic chaos for things to return to normality, there's been an immense amount of human suffering first. So what happens if automation does bite, things progress faster than expected, and the unemployment and underemployment rates shoot up? but no one can get the economic or political will and capital together to enact a universal basic income. Politically, when you try to enact this stuff, don't you think that the 50% of people who are still working, or who are scrabbling around to find freelance employment, will demonise those who are useless and living off their taxes? Don't you think that perhaps it will be very difficult to get a consensus, a lasting consensus, that this is really the solution? We've seen people in countries across the world make political hay by painting other groups of people as lazy or ignorant. I mean, do you not think that will be easy to do when we have, I don't know, a quarter of the population suddenly quote-unquote obsolete? Look at how people who need government programmes are demonised nowadays, and look at what happens to these programmes when there's an economic crisis or crash, as there surely would be if suddenly people have way less disposable income than they used to. So it's a one-size-fits-all solution to an incredibly complicated problem. If you're replacing the entire welfare state by a UBI, what happens to the people who are sick, whose needs are more? And if you keep the welfare state in place and add a UBI, where does the money come from? Nicholas Collins' article is great if you want the cynic's view of UBI, but the title is not PG. As far as the idea that new jobs will come along to replace the old ones, I think that it's possible. But one thing you have to remember about the original crisis in the Luddite days was that actually, yes, the spinning jenny <laughs> made the, meant that we could weave clothes more, faster, quicker, export them, that kind of thing. And the thing is, the demand for clothes is essentially elastic. You can make more clothes to a certain extent, and people will purchase more clothes. It's this consumer economy that we're all supposed to contribute to and help each other by benefiting from, you know, don't let your money stay in the bank, spend it on things you don't need, that kind of thing. And that creates employment to a certain extent. But think about what AI means. 
Think about what it would mean if there was software that could do an office job or a HR job. You can have as many copies of that software working as you want. You're only limited by your computer hardware power and, you know, the amount of memory you've got on your servers and so on, I suppose. Similarly, with uh, robots that become more and more multi-purpose, you know, you can almost have as many of those doing as many tasks as you might hope to have. I'm personally a bit sceptical that humanoid robots will ever become multi-purpose. I think that it's going to prove far more economical to just have lots and lots of specialist AIs and lots and lots of specialist robots that can individually automate tasks. Humans are the multitaskers. Robots and AI, they're good in their very, very narrow fields. And they can become superhuman in very, very narrow fields. But it's a lot more difficult to get something to become superhuman or even human-level competence across even just more than one field, as anyone will tell you who's ever tried to program a piece of code that needs to do more than one thing. And so even if you think that there's going to be a new wave of jobs that will arrive in this world where we have uh, software that can be multiplied instantly and incredibly quickly and efficiently, perhaps it's possible, but we still have to deal with the short and medium term displacement and chaos if this wave of automation happens. And there's a broader problem, because new jobs can arrive, but they can pay less well. As people who lost manufacturing jobs and moved to retail service industry found, as the original Luddites found when most of their skill was automated away. And that means the people in charge pay less and command more. Combine this with the fact that 37% of British workers think their jobs are meaningless and contribute nothing to society, according to a recent poll, and you might question if we might not just continue inventing rubbish jobs to give people something to do with their time and a reason to distribute a little income in their direction. So we see this trend we might be able to maintain employment statistics in a sort of strange way by artificially stimulating the economy. Whether that's sustainable, who knows? Some people would argue we're doing it already with quantitative easing. Then on the other hand, it seems clear that in a world where humans are competing with robots and AI, that is a world where inequality is exacerbated for all kinds of reasons. And if there are new jobs, who's to say they will pay as well as they used to? The economic anxiety argument for the political instability that we've seen in the United States is basically based on the fact that people lost jobs and had to return to jobs that didn't pay as well. So I think what's interesting is any AI enthusiast, we talked about this in our Singularity episodes, we talked about misaligned values and goals. Giving people work to do, keeping the unemployment rate a statistic down, It isn't as important to making a good society, a world that we want to live in, as giving them fulfilling work and a reason to live. And it seems that if anything, work is just getting less and less fulfilling as we, as the economy transforms under the influence of these new technologies. And it doesn't have to be this way, you know, there's plenty of useful things to be doing. It's just the way that things are constructed that means so many of us end up doing things that we don't think are important. Of course, there's a very famous and controversial essay on the topic, which was On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs by David Grover, where his essential thesis is that, in fact, the automation of most of the work in the rich world in the West actually did take place and actually did leave most of us useless. But we invented vast bureaucracies and consultancies and telemarketing firms and administrative functions to keep everyone in work. Here's a quote. 
In the year 1930, John Maynard Keynes predicted that, by the century's end, technology would have sufficiently advanced in countries like Great Britain or the United States that they would have achieved a 15-hour work week. There's every reason to believe that he was right. In technological terms, we're quite capable of this. And yet it didn't happen. Instead, technology has been marshalled, if anything, to figure out ways to make us all work more. In order to achieve this, jobs have had to be created that are effectively pointless. Huge swaths of people, in Europe and in North America in particular, spend their entire working lives performing tasks that they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It is a scar across our collective soul. Yet virtually no one talks about it. It's as if someone out there were making up pointless jobs just for the sake of keeping us all working. While corporations may engage in ruthless downsizing, the layoffs and speed-ups invariably fall on that class of people who are actually making, moving, fixing and maintaining things. Through some strange alchemy that no one can quite explain, the number of salaried paper pushers ultimately seems to expand, and more and more employees find themselves, not unlike Soviet workers actually, working 40 or even 50 hour weeks on paper, but effectively working 15 hours, just as Keynes predicted since the rest of their time is spent organising or attending motivational seminars, updating their Facebook profiles or downloading TV box sets. The answer clearly isn't economic, it's moral and political. The ruling class has figured out that a happy and productive population with free time on their hands is a mortal danger. Think of what started to happen when this even began to be approximated in the 60s. And on the other hand, the feeling that work is a moral value in itself, and that anyone not willing to submit themselves to some kind of intense work discipline for most of their waking hours deserves nothing. This is extraordinarily convenient for them. End quote. So you should read the whole essay, even if you violently disagree with its central thesis, and there's always debate over what is and isn't considered meaningful and to contribute to society. Even if you think that it's wildly over-exaggerated, you have to admit that if automation continues apace, we might expect more and more people devoted to computing fewer and fewer valuable, necessary tasks. The optimists say that AI algorithms won't replace humans, but will instead liberate us from the dull parts of our jobs. Lawyers used to have to spend hours trawling through case law to find legal precedents. Now, click of a button, AI can identify the most relevant documents for them. Doctors no longer need to spend their time looking through endless scans and performing diagnostic tests. Machines can do this very routine work, leaving the difficult human job of decision-making and communication to the person. This boosts productivity and provides invaluable tools for the workers. They view work, then, as becoming more fulfilling and allowing us to enjoy the creative and challenging parts of our jobs. And of course, when I look around at the scientific community, I imagine that, I imagine that if any of us had to do our calculations in longhand, or our drawings in longhand, and couldn't, you know, hive off a lot of the work to some Python module, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. But there are issues with this rosy picture of how technology impacts the world of work. If humans need to do less work, the economic incentive is for the boss to reduce their hours. Some of these dull routine parts of the job, as well as fleshing out the working week, were traditionally how people getting into the field learned the ropes. Paralegals used to look through the case law, and that was how you'd start in a law firm but AI may render them obsolete. You may think that journalism is a perfect example of a job that can't be automated. 
After all, you need to be creative to a certain degree to write, you need to interact with people to have a network of contacts and understand human psychology, and you need to be flexible, capable of dealing with a wide range of situations and conceptually understanding language, rather than just responding to cues. These are precisely the traits, creativity, human interaction, flexibility, that we said in the last episode characterise jobs that would be difficult to automate. But that's not true of all the entry-level jobs in the profession. Even in the field of journalism, there's now software that will rewrite press releases for publication in your publication. That was traditionally something close to an entry-level task. If there are no entry-level jobs, or if entry-level now requires years of financially insecure training to get there, or experience that will be more and more difficult for people to get, the result is to exacerbate inequality and reduce social mobility. Only rich people will be able to afford a punt on certain careers. In many ways, this has already happened. The idea that technology exacerbates inequality is not new. This was on a generally pro-technology news website, TechCrunch. However, the increase in inequality is affecting high- and middle-income countries as labour-saving technology has replaced many blue-collar jobs that paid well. Those workers have had to switch to retail and home healthcare jobs, where the pay is typically lower. The disparity between the rich and everyone else is larger than ever in the United States, and few places is this skewed wealth distribution more visible than in and around Silicon Valley. The chasm between tech multi-billionaires and the rest of the population in Northern California, where an estimated 31% of jobs pay $16 an hour or less, and the median income in the US today is about the same as it was in 1995, has led to the conclusion that the tech sector is greatly contributing to increased inequality. So there's all the wealth generated in Silicon Valley, but are we seeing much trickle down to the people who live there? Eh, Not so much. But it's not just the replacement jobs. It's how you get one of the remaining jobs. The adoption of algorithms into employment has already had negative impacts on equality. Cathy O'Neill, the mathematics PhD from Harvard, raises these concerns in her excellent book, Weapons of Maths Destruction. She notes that algorithms designed by humans often encode the biases of the society that designs them, whether they're racial or based on gender and sexuality. Now, there's a really big problem, because these algorithms are essentially black boxes. People don't necessarily know what's inside. And sometimes they don't even know how the algorithm does what it does. You just put in your information, and it gives you an answer. If a person is discriminatory, there's a paper trail, you know, there's a there's a recourse. You can pick on this individual person. You can say, I have a feeling that they did this because of, you know, discriminatory purposes. You can try and avoid it. You can try and circumvent it. You can do things to prevent that. If the algorithm just spits out a no without any explanation of how it came to that decision, how are you going to know whether it's made a reasonable, unbiased assessment? Or how are you going to know if the human biases were encoded into that algorithm? Google search engine advertises more executive-level jobs to users that it thinks are male. AI programs predict that black offenders are more likely to re-offend than white offenders. And so, if the algorithm determines sentences, they receive correspondingly longer sentences. Now, probably no one at Google or no one at these AI programs for prison rehabilitation has gone in and said, I think men deserve better jobs, or I think black people reoffend more often. It needn't necessarily be that the bias has been actively programmed. 
Perhaps the algorithms just learn from the historical data. But this means that they will perpetuate historical inequalities, and they won't be able to reason and judge in the same way that people do. A reasonable person would say, well, it may well be the case at the moment that there are more executive level jobs uh, for males, but that is due to entrenched inequality in society that we've only recently begun to recognise and even more recently begun to actually try and deal with. And so these algorithms have a very real potential to perpetuate the inequalities that exist in society, rather than taking away the irrationality of human decisions they could encode them into an ironclad law. Either way, according to Cathy O'Neill, they are using people's fear and trust of mathematics to prevent them from asking questions, with no transparency or understanding of how the algorithm generates its results, and no consensus over who's responsible for those results. Discrimination can occur automatically on a massive scale. Combine this with other demographic trends. In which countries people are living longer? An increasing burden will be placed on a shrinking tax base to support that elderly population, unless we develop some sort of technology that keeps people young and allows them to work for longer and so on. A recent study said that due to the accumulation of wealth in older generations, millennials stand to inherit more than any previous generation. But, due to the fact that people are living longer, it won't happen until they're in their 60s. Meanwhile, those with savings and capital will benefit as the economy shifts. The stock market and GDP grow, but wages and equality will fall. This is the situation that favours people who are already wealthy. This is what we've seen in the recent economic recovery. And today, as I write this, we see that 82% of the wealth that was generated in 2017 went to the top 1% in society. It's only getting worse. All of the trends and forces that I can see only serve to exacerbate this at least within the countries that are already wealthy. Even in the most dramatic AI scenarios, inequality is exacerbated. If someone develops a general intelligence that's near human or superhuman, and they manage to control it, they instantly become immensely wealthy and powerful, at least as long as they can control it. And if they can't control it, and we end up with a situation like we dealt with in Sir Teat Wauke specials, the Singularity episodes, then it's difficult to see how there'll be any work for humans at all, except maybe for a few of us as pets. If the glorious technological future that Silicon Valley enthusiasts dream about is only going to serve to make the growing gaps wider and strengthen existing unfair power structures, is it really something worth getting that excited about? Now, you might think that there's this lengthy focus that I've had on inequality, and you might think that, you know, life is unfair. Deal with the inequality. If you can't learn how to be useful in society, then you will earn less and you will have to make do with what you can get. And this is the sort of libertarian approach that a lot of the Silicon Valley types have. Because, of course, they have succeeded in their lives, or at least so they think, and therefore they feel like anyone else can do so as well. You're bound to be biased heuristically if that's your life experience, is one of hard work leading to success. You have never experienced a life where hard work doesn't lead to success, and yet that is the life that a lot of people experience. If you're telling me that these CEOs work harder than people who essentially have to struggle to stay alive, then I doubt it. I doubt it. 
But the reason that inequality is such a huge concern is not just that an unequal society is a worse society for a greater number of people. It's that inequality has only ever historically been alleviated by terrible disasters. Read the book The Great Leveller. That will explain to you that throughout all human societies throughout history, as far as we can measure, from cavemen all the way through, across the geographical regions, across history, it has taken disasters to reverse trends of rising inequality. Perhaps in cases of war, civil wars, this kind of thing, it could be that the inequalities lead to the disasters. But I'm not sure we can afford to have another disaster. They talked about the Black Death in the 1300s as a classic example. There was rising inequality, then there was a plague. Lots of labourers died, and this meant that the surviving labourers could charge more for their labour. It was worth more. There was no longer a surplus of them. They were in demand. Do we want to solve our economic problems with a cull of the human population? I don't think so. Similarly, there was a huge reversal in the trend of increasing inequality in the First and Second World Wars. Can we have a world war nowadays with nuclear weapons and all the weapons of the future that we barely even know about? Again, I don't think so. And on the theme of inequality, I'm merely talking at the moment about inequality within wealthy countries. But of course the same can be said for inequality globally. The idea that a fraction of the world is obese while the other half is undernourished. The idea that half of the workers have nothing valuable to contribute and should end up on the cyber doll or immersed in virtual reality while in the real world people starve for want of food or die for want of medical care. It's perverse. So I need to acknowledge that when I rage against the rising inequality in the 1%, that what I'm really doing is raging against the 0.01%. They are the 1% that I see, but for most of the people on the planet, I am the 1%. There's a concept in economics called the Gini coefficient that measures inequality in societies. As it approaches one, you approach a perfectly unequal society. In terms of the Gini coefficient for wealth, capital that people own, the UK is the third most unequal country. The US is the most unequal country. It's a new age of aristocrats in terms of assets that people hold. But if one were to calculate a Gini coefficient for the world as a whole, you'd probably find that it was increasing too. We urgently need to redefine our notion of progress. Philosophers worry about an AI that is misaligned. The things that it seeks to maximise are not the things that we want maximised, but instead some false measure. It thinks it's maximising human happiness, but actually it's just injecting us all with chemicals that make us appear happier. It does things to maximise in the way that we don't want. And at the same time, we have an economic system that measures the development of our countries by something like GDP. It's all about growth, 2-3% to growth in the stock markets and GDP. Less weight is put on the quality of life of the workers, or the equality of opportunity in the society. Increased wealth with increased inequality is not progress. We've talked about how the position that there are always winners and losers in society is a concern. Because, ultimately, there's only so much inequality that a society can take before that actually stifles economic growth. I suppose it's this kind of catastrophe that the Silicon Valley types who support a universal basic income are hoping to avert. 
They know that if you take this seriously and picture a world where 50% of people are permanently unemployed or unemployable, then the rest of us are scrabbling around for whatever few tasks we can get or else have to become highly educated in the few fields that are still useful. In such a world, there's not much chance of the kind of political and social stability you need for the economic growth they want. And the new techno-imperialists probably also understand that if there's no one to buy their products, they won't be rich. And they probably also understand that unless you keep people alive and mollified by universal basic income bread and Netflix circuses, soon enough they'll be kicking down your door. People who are optimistic about this say, look, technology will be your friend and your tool and enable you to accomplish great feats. But they may well have said the same to the skilled workers in the Luddite movement, who found themselves replaced by people who were paid far lower wages. Naturally, then, as now, the people who held capital reaped the profit. Although he wasn't specifically talking about economic inequality and the future of work, but rather social inequality, any Luddite or Neo-Luddite worth their salt would balk at Cory Doctorow's headline in The Guardian. Technology is making the world more unequal. Only technology can fix this. Really? Well, how's it starting? This has come across as a little bleak. In my heart, I still find myself agreeing with one of my favourite authors growing up. I've mentioned him already. Douglas Coupland wrote so many books about technology, generational divides, the impact of computers in the digital age. Microsurfs, in its spiritual sequel, J-Pod, described working in the tech industry. In an interview on the subject, he said, The 9-to-5 is barbaric, I really believe that. I think one day we will look back at 9-to-5 employment in a similar way as how we see child labour in the 19th century. The future won't have it. Instead, the whole day will be interspersed with other parts of your life. Scheduling will become freeform. At the same time, Kubland is hardly utopian about the world to come. He talks about the division of the world into people with permanent, impossible, impossible to automate skills who have job jobs in the future, and the rest who get by on mix of skills and government assistance. Even if this strange hybrid future with utopian and dystopian aspects that Kuplan predicts does eventually come to pass, and it seems inevitable that we will move towards it, there will be disruptions along the way. It may well be the case that the AI revolution will progress slower than people had planned, and robots will continue to be a sideshow for most people for a long time. It may well be the case that new jobs and new occupations that we can't even begin to imagine take hold, and everyone's still employed in 50 years. But I see no indication that anything at the moment seems likely to reverse the trend of rising inequality, and however bad the job apocalypse is, it seems likely to exacerbate it. We'd better hope that someone comes up with a solution to the problem of exacerbated inequality. In a world of nuclear weapons, bio-warfare, cyber-warfare, a world of unprecedented, complex, distributed threats. The consequence of these safety valves could be worse than ever before. Inequality increases the risk of global catastrophe, and global catastrophes could scupper any progress towards the techno-utopia that the utopians dream of. There may well be a rosy future somewhere down the line, but getting there is not trivial. Sadly, I don't see any convincing movement towards it anytime soon. That was all a little cynical. Maybe you disagree. If so, I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at PhysicsPod, on the website www.physicspodcast.com. There's a contact form there that you can email me directly, and yes, I read everything you send, and I normally reply. If you have a good point, I will mention it in a future show. I mean, why not make this into a debate? What do you think is going to happen to the future of work? What do you think will happen with your job? What do you think will happen with automation and AI? What do you think about the universal basic income? 
And what do you think about the rising trend of inequality? I'm always on the lookout for listener questions. And, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not a social scientist. I'm giving my opinion in this episode. I think it would be interesting to hear the range of opinions that are out there. In the meantime, do visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com. And the best thing you can always do for us, aside from donating, of course, is to tell at least one other friend. Tell some people. Get some more people listening. Get them involved in the conversation. Until then, don't smash any machines that could smash you back.